If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 3. Now, for the sake of the new folks who are tuning in tonight, and uh, some might even be here, we are studying Romans uh, here at Calvary on Wednesday night. And in our study, we are currently in the second major section of the book, a section that runs from chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5, verse 21. This section is dealing with one of the most important, if not the most important doctrine of the Christian faith, the doctrine of justification. And in this section, Paul is basically telling us how fallen sinners can be made right with God. And it's not by our works. It's not by, you know, how moral we are or our religious uh, good deeds. Really, Paul tells us that to be made right with God is really a gift made possible by the atoning work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. And because of what Jesus did on our behalf, God is now offering justification, salvation, uh, as a gift, a gift he is offering to everyone who wants to receive it, and all they have to do is receive it by faith. But here's the problem. We've been talking about this the last couple of weeks. Here's the problem. There are two kinds of faith. There's true faith and false faith genuine faith and counterfeit faith so how can we know that our faith is genuine that it's true saving faith well uh, in our previous studies we've already looked at the qualities that listen don't prove a person as saving faith some of that was a little surprising because uh, often we look at looked at some of those things on that first list as being an evidence that a person is really saved um, I think if you're really saved, you'll have those things on that first list, but that doesn't prove in and of themselves that you are genuinely saved. You have to come over into this second list, which we've been looking at, which we started last week, looking at the qualities of true saving faith. And I'm just going to read the ones we, we did last week. I won't have time to really get into them. Uh, you can go online and get the teaching. But the qualities of true saving faith, first of all, an all-consuming love for God. Not for religion, but for God. Number two, genuine repentance. Not simply remorse or regret. Genuine repentance coupled with a hatred for sin. Number three, genuine humility. The kind that Jesus manifested on the earth that put others before himself. Number four, one of the qualities of true saving faith is a desire to glorify God above all else. Number five, a heart for prayer. Um, you know, any religious unbeliever can pray a lot for themselves and maybe even their immediate family. But Paul the Apostle, he prayed nonstop for all the churches. And that's the heart of a true child of God, a, a burden. And that brings us to uh, our sixth one that we looked at. A, another quality of true saving faith, a love for fellow Christians. The whole body of Christ, not just your church or denomination. So, you know, one of the qualities of true saving faith is a love for fellow Christians. And that brings us tonight to number seven on the list, separation from the world, separation from the world. Second Corinthians 6, verses 17 and 18, Paul said, quoting actually the Lord, uh, you know, from the Old Testament, he said, God speaking, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. 
I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. The word ekklesia, uh, the word translated church, uh, is the Greek word ekklesia, and it literally means an assembly of called out ones. We're in the world, but we've been called out of the world. Now, we have to be here until Jesus returns. We're in the world, but we're not any longer of the world. And that is what the idea is. God never tells his people to isolate themselves in nunneries and uh, you know monasteries. That's not how you separate from the world. You can't reach the world for Christ if you're living separate, held up in some castle somewhere where you're just around other monkey people. Uh, <laughs> no, we have to be in the world, but we are not to be of the world. Uh, when God says, come out from among them, my people be separate. Yeah, in your hearts, uh, with your lives, as far as you're not participating in the darkness you once were involved in, uh, and so on. I will have you turn to 1 John 2, and we'll read verse 15, where John said, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, he's not talking about ecology, the planet Earth, uh, God's creation. He's not talking about that. The world is the evil world system controlled by the devil. That's the idea. Don't love this evil world system or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him or her. It's a um, contradiction to say, I love God and the world. You either love God or the world, but you can't love them both. You can't serve two masters. i give you one more. There's many others. James 4, verse 4 adulterers and adulteresses do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with god whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of god now at this point some might say well what about carnal christians do you believe there are carnal christians i do believe that uh, not everybody does i've met christians who don't believe there is such a thing as a carnal christian I think if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he, he talks about the, to the Corinthians, says, I wish I could speak to you as the spiritual people. I can't. You're babes in Christ because of all the divisions and fightings and things going on. Um, so I do believe there, there are carnal Christians. But here's also what I believe. If they're genuine Christians, they're going to grow. They're going to grow out of that carnality. And that brings us to the eighth quality of true saving faith, spiritual growth slash fruit. Turn to Matthew 13. Spiritual growth slash fruit. Everything that is alive grows and reproduces. But in Matthew 13, I want to look at verses 3 through 9 first. Then when he, Jesus, spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. 
He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, the disciples came to the Lord while he uh, had finished preaching for the day, and they were in a house somewhere. And they came to him, and they asked him to explain the parable of the sower. So in starting in verse 18, he begins, Therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. But he who received, received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now, he who received the seed among, among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, uh, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Um, there's different interpretations, and I'm not going to get into them all. Uh, let me just give you the two main ones. Some commentators believe that the first three uh, speak of a person who is genuinely saved, and only the last one speaks of a person that is not saved. Uh, I don't see it that way. I don't think uh, three-quarters of the people you share the gospel with are going to get saved. I think the first one and the last one are pretty easy. The first one, seed that fell on the wayside or hard soil, those are just hard-hearted people. They're not looking to receive Christ. They hear the gospel. They could care less, and uh, the devil snatches it away from their heart. They don't give it a second thought. The last group that receives the seed and bears fruit, they're true believers. It's the middle two groups that raise uh, an issue. And I believe what you have are not true Christians, but you have people that have come to church, heard the word. One has an emotional response. Maybe comes down the aisle to pray to receive Jesus with the altar calls given weeping. Great emotion. But, you know, it's not really rooted in genuine faith. And um, the cares of this life eventually, you know, choke it out. Uh, never bears fruit. This person never does bear fruit. The other one, of course, that falls among the thorns is the one who uh, hears the word, receives it, quote-unquote. Um, but when persecution arises because of the word, that person falls away and doesn't bear any fruit. The point of the parable is that it's fruit, not foliage, that determines whether a person has true saving faith. Jesus said you'll know them by their what? Fruit, not foliage. I mean, you know, what's the point of a plant that bears foliage but brings forth no fr a fruit bearing plant or a tree there's no point in that the whole point of agriculture is fruit bearing and jesus said you will know them the truth from the false by the fruit not that they come to church and get excited for a while and walk an aisle and pray a prayer and fill out a card and there you go and then they're off with the world again or somebody who's a fair weather christian as long as god blesses me i'll walk with him but you know, if any persecution arises, I didn't sign up for that, I'm out of here. Listen, a person can't be dead in trespasses and sins, unbeliever, and still bring forth the fruit of the Spirit, which is life. Death can't bring forth light, life. You need life to produce life. Uh, within every piece of fruit are the seeds that produce more fruit. That's just the way God's designed it. So one of the 
qualities of true saving faith is spiritual growth. They may start out carnal. Of course, we all do to a certain degree. Uh, some remain carnal longer than others, but as time goes on, if they're genuine, the Holy Spirit's going to get a hold of their heart more and more, and they're going to eventually grow and start bearing fruit. And number nine, give you one more, another mark of true saving faith is obedient living. Now, when we say this, we're not saying that a true Christian always obeys the Lord perfectly. We're saying, though, that the general pattern of our life before we got saved was we lived in sin and once in a while did some good stuff. And now that we're saved, we try to live for the Lord and once in a while we may sin. Of course, you all remember John 10, verse 27. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice. They listen to me. I know them. The Greek is a very deep knowledge, the knowledge of being one with Christ, salvation. And they what? Follow me. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. That is the evidence of true saving faith. You're following Jesus. Turn to 1 John 2. And stay in the neighborhood, because we're going to jump over to chapter 3. But 1 John 2, starting with verse 3. I love these few verses on this subject, because John really lays it out. 1 John 2, verse 3. John said, Now by this we know that we know him. How do we know we're really saved? That we really know him? If we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, I'm a Christian. And does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly, the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. How do, what do we know if we keep his commandments? That's how we know that we're really saved. I always believed in Jesus. I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church, and I always believed in him. Uh, I remember praying to the Lord every night before I went to bed from second grade because my two cousins were in Nam, and every night I prayed for them. And I kept that pattern up uh, into my teen years and after we got married. So I, I believed in Jesus. It's just that I really wasn't living for him. You can have head knowledge without having true saving faith. And that's what we're talking about. Obviously, John is not talking to the world. The world doesn't come to church. The world doesn't hear Jesus' words. The world doesn't say they're Christians. But people who come to church, there are the true, and then there are those that think they're true. And we're trying to isolate, well, what are the qualities that really point to true saving faith? And one of them is obeying what the Lord has said. Look at 1 John 3, verse 10. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Here we go. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. And he goes on to say, but those who practice righteousness are really the children of God. And the key word is practice. Okay, practice. The general pattern of a believer's life is that they want to practice what God has told them. They want to live for the Lord. We don't always do it perfectly, but that's our heart. We really do want to obey him and so on. But if we don't practice righteousness, um, well, John says that you're not of God. Uh, or if you don't love fellow Christians, as we looked at last time, I think it was number six. 
Um, and we're talking about the body of Christ in general, not just your church or denomination or whatever. Uh, you have a love for the people of God no matter where they are in the world. And that's why Christians will often rush to give money or rush physically to an area of the world where uh, there has been an earthquake or something devastating and the church there is struggling and we run to help our fellow Christians and, of course, uh, those that go wind up also helping the non-Christians because we want to see them saved too. But uh, we have a love for the people of God. That's just what it is when you get saved. Now, guys, at this point, after having looked at that, I want to draw your attention. I want to turn our attention to the doctrine of justification since it's the main theme of this section. And as I said, this is without a doubt one of the most important doctrines, if not the most important doctrine of the Christian life. And I want to spend a little time with it this evening because I, I think we need to be aware. We should have a working knowledge of something that important to our Christian faith. And so let's take a little time uh, looking at this. As we said earlier, the basic idea of justification is how fallen men and women are made right with God, or in other words, how they are made acceptable to God and enabled to have fellowship with him both now and forever in heaven. Now, with regard to our study tonight, let me just say that there are two aspects of biblical justification that we need to understand. First of all, justification involves a declaration. Justification involves a declaration. It is God saying, based upon the merit of my son, Jesus Christ, based upon the death of my son, based upon the righteousness of my son and your faith in my son, I declare you to be justified, right with me. Look at Romans 4, verse 11. Now in Romans 4, Paul is talking about Abraham and uh, how he was justified by faith. Romans 4, verse 11, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. As we said Sunday, our previous Sunday, Abraham was justified, saved by faith as recorded in Genesis 15, verse 6. That was 14 years before he was circumcised in Genesis 17, verse 24. The Judaizers were trying to say that you had to believe Gentiles in Christ and be circumcised before you can be saved. And Paul is saying here in Galatians, well, you know, uh, Abraham was declared righteous 14 years before he was ever circumcised. And he was circumcised eventually as a sign of the righteousness he had by faith. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are, are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. That is such an important concept. Paul uses it 11 times in this one chapter alone. I think it's legizomai is the Greek word. But he tells us that the righteousness of God, listen, isn't earned, it's imputed. Now we talked about this a couple weeks ago. 
The Greek word translated imputed is a banking term that means to put to one's account. Uh, think of a digital money transfer from one account to another that we're so used to today. Uh, very normal part of our, uh, our lives financially. But we need to understand that justification is also a legal term. A legal term. It's an act of justice, a legal acquittal from guilt by God the judge and the pronouncement that the believing sinner is now righteous in his sight. Uh, here's the thing, though. There has to be a basis for God declaring us righteous. He can't just pull it out of the thin air and just say, oh, okay, well, I declare you righteous. He has to have a basis for declaring us righteous or else he wouldn't be the righteous judge of all the earth. Very important point. In other words, someone had to pay for our sins. And of course, we know who that someone is, Jesus Christ. He paid the penalty for our sins. And when we put our faith in him, God transferred from Jesus' account to ours the perfect righteousness of Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. So perfect righteousness resided in Jesus' account, if you will. And when you put your faith in him, faith became the vehicle, the medium by which God transferred Christ's righteousness from his account into our account. Well, is Jesus' righteousness ever going to run out? You know, no, it's infinite. Um, our money runs out, okay? Uh, you transfer enough money over to one of your kids' accounts for college and it gets pretty low pretty quick. But, you know, Jesus' account has always got enough righteousness for anyone who wants to put their faith in him. But Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For he made him, Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, there's something else you may not realize uh, about this subject. God not only declares us righteous by justification through faith, listen, he actually makes us righteous. And that's the second thing we need to understand. Yes, number one, justification involves a declaration. Number two, justification involves a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, she is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Uh, many people believe that in justification, God only declares them righteous. He only declares them righteous. They believe that God just sort of says, well, I'll call you righteous. You know, I'll pretend you're righteous, even though you're really not. I mean, yes, God does declare us righteous, but there's also a reality that goes along with it. We're not just declared righteous, we are made righteous. Years ago, the great Bible teacher, um, Henry, uh, Harry Ironside, was in town speaking, at going to be speaking at a church, maybe the very church he visited that morning. So he visited this church, finds his way into the adult Sunday school class, and there the teacher is teaching about this topic. And he uses his Bible, which was a, had a black cover, to illustrate what Christ does for us. And he took his black Bible, held it up, and said, This was us before Christ. Black as sin was our lives. 
And then he takes a white piece of paper and he wraps it around the Bible and says, and now here we are in Christ. Ironside raises his hand. What happens to the black underneath the white? What do you mean? Does the black stay there? Does the white just create a thin veneer? I mean, like, is Christ's righteousness just a thin veneer that covers over the blackness of sin? He never thought about that. The teacher finally said, sir, you should come up here and teach. You know the subject better than me. <laughs> and Ironside said, here's the problem with that analogy. God doesn't just take Christ's righteousness and paper over our unrighteousness. He turns us righteous so that now when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ through and through, through and through. And so when it comes to justification, it doesn't just involve, listen, imputation, which is a declaration of righteousness, but you also have impartation, which is the, the granting of real righteousness. As one pastor said, and I quote, God isn't simply playing some kind of fanciful, fictional word game with us, saying something to be true about us that really isn't true. God doesn't pretend with us. He doesn't play act with us. If God says that you're righteous, you are righteous, end quote. You see, there is a genuine transformation that takes place the instant you put your faith in Jesus Christ, and that coincides with him making you a new creation. Again, let me read 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The verb become in the Greek means to come into existence, to come into existence as in a brand new creation, something that didn't exist before. So Paul is saying that we actually are made righteous, actually not, the, not just theoretically, but actually. In salvation, God actually causes us to become righteous in the sense that we are literally changed. We're not the same person. We have become a brand new creation in Christ. Look at Romans 5, verse 17. Romans 5, 17. For if by one man's offense, talking about Adam, for if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Listen, when Adam sinned, the whole race became sinners. It wasn't that we were just declared sinners. We became actual sinners. I mean, that wasn't just some theoretical statement about us. It's a fact. When God calls us sinners, it's because we are, in fact, sinners. And Paul's point is, if Adam's sin could make us sinners, could turn us into sinners, then by the same token, the sacrifice of Christ and your believing in him can make you righteous. Paul refers to it in Romans 5.17 as the gift of righteousness. And the idea is he's not just talking about words. There's something substantive here, something real. Look at verse 19, Romans 5, verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. This is a different Greek word. It's kathistomy, and uh, it means to literally make something a reality. Guys, it's not just a declaration. It's not just God saying, 
Um, you're just as rotten and wicked and wretched as you ever were, but I'm going to pretend you're righteous. That's not how what's going on. No, the reason God can declare us righteous is because we really are made righteous or else God is saying something about us that isn't true and it's impossible for God to lie. Now, I wanted to hit this hard because I don't want you to be under any misconceptions. A lot of times, Christians think they know the meaning of a word. And we have some, obviously, some very important words, righteousness, justification, propitiation, and so on. Some very key words that are very important to our Christian faith that a lot of Christians maybe think they know what they mean, like justification. Um, I was taught by my pastor, and I, I'm sure I use this illustration. I'm not saying he didn't actually know, but he liked this, to put it this way, because it was just easier to understand. Justification is when God declares you just as if you never sinned. But that really isn't completely true. I mean, yeah, that's part of it. But it goes a lot deeper than that, all right? It goes a lot deeper. Some say, well, it's a, it's a um, amnesty. Yeah, but amnesty, the guilt still remains. The word amnesty comes from amnesia to forget. God's not going to forget that you're a sinner. He has to do something about it. And so a lot of these concepts, we have things floating around that we, we think we understand, but if we really dug into what is being said, it would shed a whole new light on what God has actually done for us. This gets into what God has done for us. I want to know everything God has done for me. Because how can I live up to my full potential if I don't know what my full potential is in Christ? Now let me just say this. Justification involves regeneration. And that's a very important point. The Bible says that we were once the enemies of God, but now we are the sons of God. And ladies, that includes you. Uh, somebody has said, well, why would God call the gals sons? It could be. Because in that culture, the girls were looked down upon. The guys were always superior. You've heard the old uh, illustration where uh, in Jewish culture, if, when a woman went into labor, uh, the whole town gathered outside with food and, and instruments. And if the word came, it's a boy, they struck up the band and had a big party. If it came, it's a girl, they all packed up and went home. The, girl, the girls weren't really prized. So you can imagine the girls back then thinking, oh, yeah, sons and daughters of God. I'll be a second-class citizen in heaven. No, no, guys, you're all sons. You're all sons, okay? But we have been born again into the family of God. Paul said in Galatians 3.26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Look, we know this, that the family of Adam, and I was teaching this actually on Halloween one Sunday, that Sunday happened to be Halloween. And I was making this point. And I was talking about uh, Adam's family. And a couple of young gals in the front row were, were, were kind of breaking up, you know. And I'm, why are they laughing? It's a serious point. I was talking about Adam's family. You know? And then I got, oh, Halloween. You know, Adam's family. Okay, yeah. Pretty scary stuff. Okay, I get it. But we know the family of Adam carries a blood curse upon it. That curse was placed on the family of Adam in the Garden of Eden when, they, when man sinned against God. And so we're all a part of Adam's family. We're born into it. Um, have you ever noticed in Scripture that 
it's always that God seems to pass over the firstborn to bless the secondborn. Esau was passed over. Jacob was the one. Well, he was the person who had faith. Esau was a man of the world. But we, we see this with uh, Ishmael. And then Isaac, right? Why is God stepping over the firstborn to bless the secondborn? Because he's trying to communicate a very important truth. We're firstborn in Adam. That's a cursed race. But we're secondborn, born again in Christ. That's where the blessing lies. And so it's interesting. The, the Bible teaches that the family of Adam carries a blood curse upon it. And all who are in the family of Adam are going to perish in judgment. The only hope a person has is to somehow change families. Change families. You're born into one family. The only hope you have is to be born into another family. A family that's not cursed, but hopefully is very blessed. Well, that's, of course, the family of God. The Bible says when you accepted Christ, you were translated or taken from the family of Adam and made a brand new creation and placed in the family of God. There's no curse in the family of God. It's all blessing, right? And that's the idea. We escape from judgment, the judgment coming upon all the sons and daughters of Adam. We give our heart to Christ. God places us. He adopts us, places us in his family where there is now blessing and so on. But another term that applies here with regard to justification, the first one was regeneration. That's salvation, God making you a, a brand new creation. But another term that applies here with regard to justification is identification. Uh, look at Galatians 3.27. Identification. This is very important. I don't know if we think about this as much as we should. Very important concept. Galatians 3.27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now be careful. The word baptism simply means to be immersed. You have to look at the context. We see baptism and we automatically assume water baptism is in view. That's the most common idea behind baptism. Dipping somebody in water. But that's not always the case. There are like, I don't know, five or six, maybe seven examples of the word baptism being used in the New Testament, and it's associated with different things. Even Jesus said, I have a baptism that I must be baptized with, and oh, how I desire for it to be completed. Speaking about being immersed in his mission to die for our sins, right? Um, so there are different things that are we are being dipped into. Right here, when Paul says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, this is a dry baptism. No water involved. Uh, you can read 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit, we have all been baptized into one body. When you accepted Christ at that instant, you were taken invisibly, spiritually, and you're immersed into the body of Christ. That's what it means to be saved. You are now a member of his body. Dry baptism. And then we take you down to water and literally dunk you to signify what has just happened. Okay? But... Understand that what Paul is saying is that when you receive Christ and you were baptized into the body of Christ, you identified with Christ in a very special way. At this point, we become at the point of salvation, we become one with Jesus. I'll read to you 1 Corinthians 6, 17. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. I really think it would be worth your while to spend a little time meditating on this idea. It's, it's biblical. 
we don't really give it a we I mean we, we no doubt we say well yeah I, I I believe that I'm sure you do but what are all the ramifications of being you know one with Christ okay there's a lot of them uh, we become one with Christ through our faith and at that point we as the Bible says we become one spirit with the Lord but we put on Christ we clothe ourselves with Christ and that is why guys listen to me now you will never come in to judgment. I know that there's a lot of good teachers. I have heard them over the years that believe a Christian can lose their salvation. I don't personally believe that. Uh, I think there's a lot of people who call themselves Christians who never actually had it. And it's not that they lose it, they just never had it. Churchgoers playing the part, deceiving themselves. But if you're a true child of God, you've been placed in his body you have become one with him and you will never come into judgment because for you to be judged jesus would have to be judged and that is absolutely impossible he's perfect and you are one with him so how are you going to come into judgment look at john 10 we just read verse 27 my sheep hear my voice i know them and they follow me john 10 28 and I give them eternal life. And they shall, what? Never perish. Now that's a very important idea. Now there was Donald Gray Barnhouse, who I just love him. He's with the Lord. But he was speaking on this topic somewhere. He spoke all over the place. And a woman came up to him after his lecture and challenged him about this idea that Christians can't lose their salvation. He said to her, but Jesus said, I give them eternal life. Yeah, unless I blow it. Okay, well, if the Lord would have said, I give them life for a decade, how long would that have been? Ten years. What if he said, "I believe in me, I'll give them life for a century? How long would that be? hundred years. So he says, I give them life for eternity. But that means unless you blow it? I don't see that here, right? They shall never perish. The Greek, there's three voices in the Greek. The active, passive, and middle voice. The active voice is where you put a sentence in where the subject is doing the action. I threw the ball to Bob. I'm doing the action. The passive voice is where the action is being done to me. Bob threw the ball to me. The middle voice is where I'm doing the action to myself. It's reflexive. I threw the ball to myself. Jesus is saying, when a person puts their faith in me, I give them eternal life, listen, and they will never do anything to cause themselves to perish. So this idea, well, yeah, unless I blow it. Let me just say this to you. A chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Many years ago, when we first moved into the village where we live, there was a restaurant nearby, and it had a nautical theme. I think the restaurant was actually down the hatch. I think that's what it was. They're gone, long gone. But you walk up to the doors, and you know the doors were kind of like uh, you know portholes for windows, and and out in front they had this massive chain. It looked like it actually came from a large ship, and it had a big anchor. They had it like for decorative purposes. I swear to you, the diameter of each of those links had to be an inch. 
That's a, that's a thick chain, right? That's the chain of salvation. It's absolutely unbreakable. Now, say that I would insert between two of those giant steel links, a very thin link the size, you know, diameter of a strand of human hair. Now how strong is that chain? It's very weak. Because the chain is only as strong as its weakest link. If God allowed me to be have a part in my salvation, there'd be no hope, there'd be no rest, there'd be no peace. I'm not worried about him. I'm not worried about his promises and his faithfulness. It's on me. That's the one I'm worried about. Thank God he didn't leave it, uh, allow us to be part of the equation. Those he foreknew, those he predestined, those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he what? Will glorify. It's called the golden chain of Romans 8. It's all he who he chose, he called, he justified, he glorified. It's all about him. I'm not in the equation. Thank God. Perfect love casts out what? I would be a basket case every day of my salvation dependent on me and my faithfulness from day to day. So let me finish because I got off on a little tangent there. But here. So let me back up. Verse 28. My sheep hear my voice. They follow. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So you see the picture here, right? You're in good hands with Allstate. That's nothing. Okay? You got the Father and the Son, and they got, they've got us tightly held in their hands, right? Protecting us securely. And this lady said to Barnhouse, Yes, but I can, I can sin and slip through his fingers. Some people are so determined to lose their salvation, it's pathetic. Okay? He said, he said Madam, you can't slip through his fingers because you are one of his fingers. You're his body. You're one with him. You're not separate from him. See, but a lot of times... People don't really think through all the implications of what the Bible is saying. And in this context, what it means to be one with Christ. What it means to be one with Christ. We're not separate from him. We can't slip through his fingers. We are his fingers. We're, we're part of his body. Turn back to Romans 3. I want to read verses 27 to 30 as we bring it to a close. So Paul is wrapping, <clears throat> wrapping this section up, which runs from chapter 3, verse 21 to Verse 31. But verse 27, where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law or the principle of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised, the Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, through faith. Um, let me just ask you this, or say this, okay? Um, what are the implications 
of justification or what are the implications of being made righteous all right uh, just quickly uh, well first of all it doesn't mean that you're perfect practically speaking uh, as god sees you you're in christ positionally you are perfect because you're in christ but practically now on this earth doesn't mean we're going to be perfect just because we're some christians believe in what's called christian perfectionism once they accept christ they never sin i would love to be a fly on the ceiling of the car with them driving down a busy expressway. Okay? I mean, give me a break. But it doesn't mean that you're perfect, practically speaking, or that you never sin. Otherwise, think about it. All talk about sanctification and growing in Christ, and for that matter, the whole rest of the New Testament would be meaningless. I mean, if we're all perfect from a practical standpoint, the moment we receive Jesus as our Savior then there's no need for God to tell us how to live, which is the bulk of the New Testament, telling Christians how to live now that they're saved. We'd already be doing it. We'd already be perfect. He wouldn't have to tell us how to live. We'd be doing it. And so being righteous in God's eyes as believers here on earth doesn't mean we're sinless or perfect. It does mean, though, that God has recreated you and I into, listen, an eternally righteous, transformed person fit for eternity but as paul would go on to say in romans we're dragging around this corpse we have this beautiful new nature it loves god it wants to obey god's word glorify him but we're still connected to this old rotting corpse called our flesh the romans had a pretty hideous practice they had a lot of ways to kill people and one of the ways was to take a corpse and to tie it with ropes around a person that they wanted to execute. And of course, what that did was as the corpse decayed, and of course, they'd put you out in the hot sun, the decay would begin to make its way into your body and you would slowly decay. It's a very horrible way to die. But Paul uses that practice as an illustration of how once we get saved, we're a brand new person, but we're still dragging around this old, corrupt, rotting corpse called the flesh. Which means for the, the rest of your life on this earth, you and I as believers, living in these, as Paul called them, bodies of death, um, we're going con to constantly be wrestling with our flesh, our fallen nature. And that has the potential, if we let it, you have to always be on the offensive. Playing defense in your Christian life is good, but not enough. You got to play offense, okay? You got to play offense. You got to you got to charge forward. You can't retreat, retreat, retreat. If you study the pieces of armor for the Christians in, in Ephesians six, it's all for the front. There's nothing to cover the back because we're not supposed to be retreating. We're supposed to be marching forward, okay? But what Paul is telling us is that even though we're brand new creations now. Declared righteous because we really are righteous. We're still living in these bodies of death, and we're going to constantly wrestle with uh, our fallen nature, our flesh, and that will has the potential, if we let it, to restrict and hinder all that we can be now. But listen, not all we are going to be someday. Now, let me just say this. Galatians 5, verses 17 and 25. I'll, I'll just read it. We're almost out of time. Here's the war. For the flesh, our fallen nature, lusts, or the Greek is wars, against the spirit. 
and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you don't do the things that you wish. Verse 25, if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. The idea is, look, as a Christian, we have two natures. I heard a pastor one time, very well-known guy, who thought that that was ridiculous to believe that. He said, that's schizophrenic, two natures. You don't have two natures. Uh, but then what was Paul talking about right here in other places? What's the struggle if I don't have two natures? If I only have one nature now, the nature of God, what's the problem? Why am I still fighting with sin so much? Because I have is a war going on. That's what Paul's talking about. Your new nature is fighting your old nature for dominance, and we have to choose which one has dominance. And if you walk in the Spirit, and all that that implies, we don't have time to get into it this evening, you won't fulfill the lust of your flesh. You'll win. Your new nature will be in control, right? But here's the deal. Again, you, you, you have this situation where you are hindered by the flesh. You can't just do all that you want to do. Uh, the flesh is boxing you in. It's hindering. Paul even said in Romans 7, the things I want to do, I don't always do. Things I don't want to do, those things I seem to do. Oh, wretched man that I am. It's a struggle. I like the way one author put it. He said... You're like a caterpillar being transformed and yet restricted by the cocoon with traps you called your flesh. But someday you will burst out fully transformed and you'll spread your wings and fly. When the rapture happens, the flesh is jettisoned and done away with forever. Turn to Matthew 17 quickly. Just quickly. We're talking about being transformed. In Matthew 17, verses 1 and 2. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face, show, face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. The word transfigured comes from a Greek word that we get our English word metamorphosis from. To go back to that illustration about the caterpillar, turning into a new species, a butterfly. That word is used. It's called metamorphosis, right? That same word is used of our, of, well, of Jesus' transfiguration here. What was going on with Jesus? Jesus, his glory as God, was, was clothed with humanity, hidden with humanity. On the Mount of Transfiguration, he kind of turned inside out, for lack of a better term. In other words, they got a glimpse of his second coming glory where he was fully transformed, fully glorified. But that was a preview of what's going to happen to all of us. Uh, look at 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll close. Metamorphosis, like when a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. It's going to happen to all of us. 1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse 50. Now, this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These physical bodies were made for the earth, made from the dust of the earth, for the earth can return back someday to the earth when they decay. But they were not made for heaven. That's a whole different, you know. I mean, as my pastor used to say, Pastor Chuck, he said, these bodies were not made for heaven. Can you imagine getting to heaven and have to wear, have to wear like a, a pressurized diving suit because you're trying to exist in an environment that you weren't really created to to exist in? No, no, God doesn't do that. He just gives us a new body. Okay? 
nor does corruption inherit incorruption. This body that's going to die doesn't inherit heaven where there is no death. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep in death, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be what? Changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Not long ago, there was the um, World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, where all the big shots of the world, the elites, the super uber wealthy, hang out. They're a strange bunch. Did you catch any of that on TV? They had little clips of, wow. You know what? Yikes. But one of the big things among the elites is they want to, they, they want to gain immortality. If you read the uh, articles on um, transhumanism uh, and, and how that they're working behind the scenes, um, many tech companies and things, they're, uh, they're, they're trying to develop uh, ways by which your, um, your, your soul, your, your essence, is downloaded into an avatar. It's called the singularity. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a future thing yet, but they're all pushing for it. You saw the movie Avatar? And that, that's the idea, that your, your consciousness, your soul, the real you, is somehow transferred into... And some of them want it transferred into an avatar that is biological um, but superior. Others are looking to have their consciousness downloaded into some kind of a robot because they'll live forever. So you even have people uh, that um, when they die, they, have, they quickly uh, sever their heads and put them in a cryogenic state. And uh, sometimes other parts of their bodies, which we won't get into. But they're hoping that they can have this eventually get this singularity worked out where they can bring them back to life and then put their consciousness in these. You know what? I got a better solution for you. <laughs> you want to live forever in a beautiful glorified body that will never get sick or die in a kingdom that is going to be so glorious. Paul said, I can't even describe it when he was caught up to the third heaven. I would do it a great injustice. Except Christ is your Savior. A lot of these people are rabid atheists and they they are bent on becoming gods themselves that's the ultimate goal behind the uh, transhumanism movement they they want to live forever but they want to live forever as gods okay it, it's just a total rebellion against the god of creation anyways got off on another tangent i apologize um but wow receive jesus as your savior he'll give you a new life now and eventually a new body to live that life in eternity. It, it's, it's so glorious what's coming. I, I, my heart actually feels very sorry for these people. It really does. Um, Jesus did all the work. And he made the promise, come to me. And I will give you my righteousness. You'll, get, you'll become a new creation. 
not only in this life, but I'm going to take you to heaven, give you a new body. It's going to be glorious. You'll never die. You'll never weep or sorrow or get sick or whatever. Never die. Anyways, so Paul was going to go on. I didn't get a chance to get to verse 31. We'll use that as a springboard to get into chapter 4, God willing, next week. All right, Father, we thank you. We thank you for your great and precious promises. We thank you, Lord, for what justification really means to us. Yes, you declare us righteous because of what Jesus did in our behalf, but Lord, you actually make us righteous. You don't just cover our sin and blackness of our fallen hearts with a thin veneer of Christ's righteousness. No, you make us Christ's righteousness inside and out. We thank you, Lord, that there's a day coming when you're going to, the angel is going to shout, the trumpet, trumpet is going to sound, and you're going to catch us up off this earth and as we're making our way up into the air of the sky, we will undergo an instant transformation where this mortal will put on immortality and we will have our glorified bodies. We thank you, Lord. We look forward to that day. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.